Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable edition of The Hub Dialogues. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Sean, you're right beside me this week. This is weird. And Stuart, you're coming to us from the Hub headquarters in Ottawa. Great to be in conversation with you both. Yeah, it's a bummer. We got some FOMO here with you guys in the same room and me still all alone in my office in Canada, yeah. Ontario. Well, I'll be able to tell listeners how uh, how agitated or excited Rudyard is, uh, uh, depending on the topic, given that he can he can hit me if he needs to. <laughs> well, guys, two, uh, as we always like to on this podcast, uh, take on two topics. First, let's uh, dig into uh, Danielle Smith's win in Alberta. It's got uh, I think big implications for the province, but also for the Canadian Federation. And then the back half of the show, let's kind of uh, play a bit of proverbial ping pong between, I don't know what you consider it, the the absurd, the prosaic versus the, the profound. And what do I mean? I mean, um, a bad week in politics, arguably for both Pierre Polyev and Justin Trudeau. And we'll unpack that. But in the United States on Friday, the date we are recording, uh, the... 7th of October, Joe Biden telling donors at um, a New York event, this is the single riskiest geopolitical moment since the Cuban Missile Crisis. So let's play off uh, those two stories against each other and see what we can learn. But Stuart, I want to come to you first on uh, Danielle Smith. You, before joining the Hub and earlier part of your career as a journalist, worked at the Edmonton Journal. You know... um, the hustings of uh, this province well. You've been out there for the hub to do some original reporting. We have a reporter out there right now, Jeff Russ, um, uh, following on the ground the events uh, around her leadership win. What's your takeaway, Stuart? How should we interpret this? Uh, What's the key maybe data point or two to understand not just simply what happened, but what it could all mean? Yeah, I think probably the thing to look at here is that it took six rounds to get here. Um, there was some chatter about maybe a first ballot victory for Daniel Smith, the same way that Pierre Polyev did it pretty quickly in the federal conservative party, but that was not the case. And I think it was probably closer. I don't know if Daniel Smith was counting on a first ballot victory, but I think she was probably expecting a little higher number than she got on the first ballot. And I think what that shows you is that There was a lot of chatter about Polyev being this insurgent and the establishment was against him, but that was never the case. The establishment was working for Pierre Polyev and was supporting him. Um, But I would encourage people to read the Global Mail's story on this um, this morning. Um, They did a good job of something I think reporters should do more, which is that they looked around the room and they described how people were reacting in the moment. And there was a lot of Jason Kenney's senior cabinet minister's sitting together, golf clapping politely, and one of them was crying and hugging supporters. And this is a big moment. That is the establishment sitting in that corner of the room losing. And then there is Danielle Smith winning. And I think what that means is, you know, she didn't win with the kind of support that will give her free reign. She's going to have to 
you know, maybe make some concessions or maybe reach out to people. Um, or we could see a bit of a division here. So I think that's what I'm looking at is that it wasn't a sort of dominating victory. And, um, you know, a lot of these people who were Kenny's people have said they won't support the Alberta Sovereignty Act, Smith's big signature um, legislation. And Smith said she's going to bring it in. So someone's going to have to climb down here or we'll have a split. You, uh, Sean, this week in the Hub had uh, uh, your extensive interview with Jason Kenney that you conducted uh, in person uh, the week before last in Red Deer uh, on behalf of the Hub. Um, what's your take, do you think, in terms of um, the kind of Kenny camp? I mean, let's talk about, let's build on what Stuart's describing for us here, which is really a, more than just a passing of the torch. This is kind of regime change. Uh, what does that mean for the likes of the people that supported Kenny, the type of Alberta that he was trying to build versus what could be coming next? Yeah, I think that's exactly the right way to think about this. Um, and I, I, I agree with much of Stewart's observations. You know, in the absence of a comprehensive victory um, um, last night, one gets the sense that uh, that Daniel Smith is is walking into a pretty fraught situation where um, she has a critical mass of supporters who have responded to her message uh, of assertiveness, of um, you know what you might describe as as a kind of radical set of ideas or propositions about Alberta's place in the federation. And it seems to me if she fails to deliver um, on some of those promises and commitments that she's made through the leadership, um, she's going to face tremendous pressure on her right, just as Jason Kenney did. On the other hand, um, uh, as, as uh, Stuart says, um, you know, it seems to me if she goes too far on those issues, she's going to lose the support that she needs from um, the, not just the UCP establishment, but from swing voters in uh, Calgary in particular, but um, Alberta cities more generally. And I, I kind of think, guys, that this is um, uh, a kind of nut that she's not going to be able to crack for you know, lack of a better metaphor, that Jason Kenney tried to manage that, those um, tensions and trade-offs, and he couldn't do it. Uh, I'm, I don't think she's going to be able to because she's kind of gone so far out there. I, I think that last night's result you know, may be the beginning of the undoing of the United Conservative Party in Alberta and a kind of a return to um, the type of um, fragmentation on Alberta's right that we saw before this party came together. And incidentally, um, those are, um, you know, that, that, that thinking was reflected in a piece that Jeff Russ did for us this week, setting up um, the race. And I think that piece holds um, after last night's results. Yeah, Stuart. So let me come back to you and try to build on what Sean just said and try to look forward. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that we saw, to all of our surprise, but it happened, an NDP government in Alberta. To You know this province well. If Sean is right, and we can see a fragmentation again on, on the, the center right, does this create a new set of opportunities for uh, a different insurgent party, a different insurgent ideology, this time on the left to actually start to have a bigger influence, impact, maybe ultimately form government and take Alberta in a completely different direction than the one that voters have just given in terms of a mandate to Daniel Smith. 
Yeah, I, I mentioned this before, but my first major interview, you know, I would say in journalism, I was out in Whitecourt, Alberta, and I had Danielle Smith for a whole day. And one thing I would say about her, which you've probably realized if you're watching politics, is that she's an engaging, charismatic person, and she's good at politics. And I would also make the case that Rachel Notley is a, an elite politician. She's just really good at the stuff you need to be good at to be a politician. And it is funny when you're a reporter, you realize there's not a lot of that out there. It's a really, it's like a rare skill that you just very rarely see. Um, so I think this will be really interesting because that divide you talk about, it is an ideological divide and it's kind of based in sort of that ethos in Alberta of the grassroots um, kind of populist conservative um, ideas that, you know, they just kind of lend themselves to agitation. And I one of the pieces I wrote for the journal was I interviewed Brock Harrison, who was a former Wild Rose uh, comms guy at the time before he had gone to work for Andrew Scheer. And he was saying, you know, part of that movement, maybe it's not the party, maybe it's the movement, they want to be right. They don't want to win elections. And I, you know, that's, I don't think Brock necessarily meant that as a pejorative. He just meant that's what we have to deal with. Um, some people believe in their principles so strongly that they don't compromise them when it comes to you know electoral efforts. And um, I think that is what you're going to run into. And the other factor here, which is why we've seen the rise of the NDP, is there's a deepening rural-urban divide. If you look at the seat count in Edmonton, it's all NDP. And then there's the cluster of NDP in Calgary, and that if they can grow that, that's how they win. And if you are Daniel Smith and you're sort of winning based on these kind of ideas that kind of got hold uh, in rural areas, and they're really not liked in the urban areas, you have a problem. And uh, that's something that's going to be a tough nut to crack. The thing she probably has going for her is that there's not a lot of love left over for the NDP in those areas. And a new party is probably the only thing that could be a threat to the UCP. Let me just make a big picture observation, though, guys. Um, you know, one thing that I've thought about in the past 24 hours or so is that, you know, there are probably a lesson here for uh, enterprising politicians that, um, you know, the kind of short-term gratification of affirming um, lowest common denominator views in your most kind of hardcore base may be, um, may be rewarded in the immediate term, but it seems to me it risks kind of laying the, um, the seeds of a problem down the road. And, you know, had she, um, you know, there's a counterfactual, maybe if she doesn't take on the Sovereignty Act and some of these other things, she doesn't win the leadership. On the other hand, by going all in on some of this stuff, she's just created this larger problem for herself down the road. I, I think that's a lesson, um, and we'll get into this in the second half, that the Polyev campaign, the Polyev team needs to be sensitive to that, um, you know, aspiring to be the premier or the prime minister doesn't mean simply winning each day. Uh, it, it has to have, you have to have a kind of longer term view. And I, I just think, you know, she's, she, she won the leadership, but now she has to deal with the consequences of the way in which she conducted the leadership. And, uh, I come back to my earlier point. I think this is a circle that ultimately can't be squared. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it, I think it will increase the probability of an NDP outcome. And in so doing, um, the unwinding of a United Conservative Party in the province. Let's wrap up this session, Stuart, by just having you prognosticate for us. Um, always a dangerous thing to do, but I'm going to 
demanded on this occasion of like, what what do you think happens to the Sovereignty Act? I mean, is it to her advantage to try to move quickly on that to, again, show that she's responding to the constituency that has made her premier? Is it something instead, no, maybe you want to wait until the provincial election uh, coming up not too far away to somehow, in a sense, uh, provincialize that this debate, to use it as a wedge uh, and use the intervening period of time. She's a good communicator. You've mentioned that to build support around this issue that at least has, if if any issue as responsible for her win, it is this Sovereignty Act. Yeah, this entirely depends on how Daniel Smith and her team see the situation. And it you also don't know if they're right or wrong about how they see it. Because I remember Alison Redford came to power with the support of one caucus member. Gary Marr had the whole caucus behind him. She came in. So the obvious thing for someone to do in that situation is to reach out and be really nice and say, hey, look, no hard feelings. Alison Redford didn't do that. And she thought that, you know, she had this huge mandate. She won a majority government. She could just do uh, the things she wanted to do. But you know, one of the things I've heard about Stephen Harper is that he was very good at that kind of stuff, is listening to people and knowing when there was a problem and getting to it. And um, if Danielle Smith, I think, um, assumes that everyone will just want to join a winning team and will come along with her, um, she might have problems because I think there are some people who have sort of principled objections to this and they're pretty tired after this pandemic situation and all this strife in the party. And she could lose some really good people or she could have an actual revolt in the caucus, which is pretty rare in Canadian politics. So um, it really does depend on how they see this. And the sounds coming out of the Smith camp are that they think that this is sort of overblown, the idea of this split and that people will want to come on board because they're going to win. Um, I don't know. I, I've seen it go wrong before. So um, it, it's really in their court and it depends on how they see the field of play. Okay, let's uh, put a pin in what'll be in, no doubt a continuing discussion. Again, sort of just to quickly come back to you, Jeff Russ, our um, our hub fellow, is out there right now. When are we going to get uh, Jeff's on the ground report uh, for hub readers, um, and what can we expect from him? Yeah, Jeff right now is answering the question that I just couldn't answer very well, <laughs> which is that uh, how is this all going to look and what is going to happen? So um, he's been talking to people. I, I think on Tuesday morning, we'll be able to say something about what's going to happen next in Alberta. Let me just say, um, you know, to, to recognize Jeff's contribution uh, before we go to the next subject. You know, it's been so great to bring Jeff on um, to boost our journalistic capacity at the hub. I'm sure listeners have, have seen some of his great reporting, including um, on the UCP leadership, but also um, on the Quebec election and a forthcoming piece, a really deep dive on the um, Tim Houston government in Nova Scotia and whether it represents a kind of new type of conservatism that reconciles itself to a more activist government. Um, so uh, great work uh, on Jeff. I can't wait to read uh, his work on, on the leadership and grateful that he was able to go and uh, be on the ground uh, for last night's uh, results. Excellent. Well, look, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back on the other side, from the profound to the profane and back again, we're going to talk about A-bombs, other types of bombs, uh, bombs in Parliament, bombs in YouTube videos, bombs jumping off bungee towers. We've got it all for you right after this break. Thank you for listening to The Hub's podcast. 
wanted to take this opportunity to let you know that you're just one click away from receiving complimentary access to the Hub's daily email newsletter. We call it Per Diem, and it features some of our best analysis and insights, all built around the big issues and ideas shaping our world. Simply visit our website, www.thehub.ca, follow the links to subscribe, and then the next morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, you'll receive Per Diem in your inbox. You can unsubscribe at any time, no worries. But we think you're really gonna enjoy what you'll hear, see, and read via Per Diem, our daily subscription email. Thanks again for listening to this Hub Podcast. Now back to our program. Welcome back, Hub listeners. I'm in conversation with Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief, Sean Spear, our editor-at-large. I'm Roger Griffiths, the executive director of the Hub. Back half of the show, guys. Let's uh, start in the a little bit, you know, just have kind of have to have fun with this. It's partly serious, partly not. But it it there is this odd just to position right now. I think a lot of us feel between what's going on in Canadian politics, um, in some ways, how utterly superficial uh, it all seems versus the issues and agenda that the West is facing now at this moment, brought into stark relief on Friday by reports of Joe Biden talking to donors uh, in New York City about his feeling that we are right now in a moment every bit as dangerous, every bit as fraught as the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, So let's talk with the first Canadian kind of absurdity of the last uh, period of time, which is Prime Minister, in the middle of a moment where I think Canadians are increasingly stressed economically, we're at each other's throats. Culturally, we're seeing big convulsions in the political landscape. We just talked in the last break about Daniel Smith's victory in Alberta on an explicitly populist platform. He decides to go bungee jumping. Um, Stuart, how do you explain this? I have a theory, and it goes back to what I said, you know, last year about the prime minister and maybe he had finding a road, a ramp off and out of politics, a stop clock type, tells the right time twice a day. So maybe I'll finally be right on that. But <laughs> I'd be curious to know what, what you think, like what, what do his political handlers say to him? Um, how does an idea like this get thought up and how do the images that come out of it in any way work to his or the government's benefit? Yeah, I, so I don't think there are handlers who can say no to this kind of thing anymore. And that is the way it goes when you're seven years in the government and all the people who had sort of cachet with the leader are gone. And you've kind of got a bunch of 25 year olds or people who weren't part of the like insider crew. Um, Jerry Butts could have said, hey, man, like anything but bungee jumping, <laughs> and that would have gone fine. And I think that's kind of my broader take on this, which is that, you know, it's a hard job being prime minister. It's especially hard coming out of the pandemic. And I personally believe that getting some time with your family is a really good thing for your well-being and for your psyche. Um, But if he had gone for a walk in Gatineau Park to see the fall colors, that would have been fine. There would have been no fuss about that. But with this prime minister, it's just always something like bungee jumping. Like it's Mm -hmm. always the most absurd version of the family time. Um, so I, I think it either comes down to 
political instincts, which he does kind of lack on this stuff. Like it's he he seems to have a good sense of how the wind is blowing, but he doesn't have a good sense of how his own behavior uh, plays into that. And we saw that on the India trip. We saw that in a variety of other things, going to Tofino uh, uh, during you know reconciliation day, like that kind of stuff. It just doesn't. Um, it just doesn't occur to him that it might be a problem. And I I would present that as the counterpoint to he doesn't care anymore. And I think that both are just as likely. Uh, we've had a few situations recently where it seems like maybe he just wants to go bungee jumping, so he's going to do it and the politics be damned because it's not his thing anymore. And I would just add to that. I, I agree with that analysis. And I would say, you know, one of the problems with presuming that you have perpetual Teflon, you know, that is to say that these things don't stick, uh, which is a, a reasonable interpretation of his political career to date, right? The problem is that at some point they just do, that there, that there's a kind of accumulation of these sort of chips in his armor and eventually um, it codifies in a view about him and the way he feels about, um, the, you know, the lives of Canadians, etc. And so, you know, uh, betting that these things aren't going to leave an impact on people's political impressions is the right bet right up until it's not. Mm-hmm. And I think in that sense, um, especially with a really strong opposition leader um, who can um, kind of take advantage of these momentary lapses in judgment, uh, I, I'm not sure that's a safe bet as it was, say, 24 mm-hmm. months ago. Yeah, that, to me, it's just the juxtaposition of, you know, Joe Biden as leader of the free world you know, commenting again on Friday that he feels, and this is someone who was around during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and you can say lots of things about Joe Biden that you might not like, but there is an advantage here and that you do have a man in the White House who has a continuity of experience that does stretch back to Kennedy's face-off with Khrushchev, saying, in effect, his view, his feeling right now, and in, in, I guess, the intelligence assessments that he's getting from the CIA and his military, is that this is a moment that is as dangerous as the Cuban Missile Crisis was. And then to me, it just seems so utterly incongruent. And to some extent, I'll just say it's so utterly selfish for your prime minister, your leader to to basically have a look at me, mom, kind of moment where you do something that you know will demand the country's attention. And that focus will be on you doing something, something completely and utterly superficial and superfluous to the moment that we're in. And people will chide me for being a you know a humbug here and we should all have fun. I agree. He, he could have done this without the cameras. He could have gone and bungee jumped and I don't know, maybe there'd be a reporter with a telescopic lens. I don't know. But it, it's just this, this rank kind of constant need to be observed, to be the subject of public attention. Um, I don't know. I, I I don't know what to make of it. It's part of his character. It's not going away. But look, we're all about equal opportunity here at the Hub. So I think we've got to go to the scandal that has uh, rocked the conservative this conservatives this week with Pierre Polyev. Uh, interesting reporting uh, by Global and others that there were videos embedded with you know code that seemed to suggest that those videos were being purposely targeted to um, 
you know, what you can only charitably describe as men's groups. I think you could uncharitably describe these groups as being openly misogynist, possibly associated with some really, really dark stuff like the incel uh, community. Um, Stuart, you know, what do you make of this? It, it does seem to be a, we're talking about the weaknesses of these respective leaders. There seems to be around Pierre Polyev this kind of attitude of just constant total war that nothing is not permitted. You can, you know, you go into the village and instead of, you know, rounding up the villagers and, you know, providing them with humanitarian assistance, you lay waste to the village. Um, what's going on here, Stuart? And, and maybe, you know, how serious is it? Yeah, I think that you're right. And I think what is notable about this um, controversy is that they didn't just blame the media. They said, yeah, that's bad. We're going to look into this. And I, I don't know if that's the first time that's happened, but it's certainly a rare thing for the Polyev team. Um, and I would say also that I think that the worst um, version or interpretation of this is probably not true, which is that if you think that they were deliberately uh, going after these groups um, to advertise content, I think that's probably not what happened here, just sort of based on the mechanics of how these tags and, you know, SEO stuff works. Um, usually what happens is somebody comes in and says, we can juice your views if you put all these tags on here. And then they get an automated list of tags based on shared audiences or whatever. And then you throw it all in there. So the problem, there's two problems for the Polyev camp here, which is that it shouldn't have happened. And uh, they should have had someone looking through this list to make sure there wasn't something like that. And the second thing is, why is this group in there as sort of a shared audience with what you're doing? And uh, maybe there's an innocent um, reason there, but also, I mean, this is a problem that, you know, you read about the history of the Reform Party and Preston Manning was obsessed with this, keeping these sort of unsavory elements out of view and keeping them out of the party because he knew there was something out there and they knew it could hurt him uh, with mainstream voters and the media. So I think that the Polyev camp should think about that a little bit. Um, I have probably been more open than most people to the idea that with the trucker protest, that was a symbolic way to be against vaccine mandates. And there are negative consequences that come along with that. There are problems with mainstream voters and problems with the media. Um, and you have to draw a line somewhere. You have to figure out where is this too far and where do we look like we're endorsing this group or that group? Yeah, I'll be a bit sharper than that. Um, uh, you know, Stuart, Stuart, sometimes he's, he's, he's too nice. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I do think that this represents the worst instincts of Pierre Polyev and his team. You use the word juice. And I think that's a good way to think about it, that they're, they lack a kind of prudential lens it all it always has to be total total victory total annihilation you know i think of you know his videos are performing well but it's not enough that they're performing well they need to perform better they need to be juiced and they, you know they're prepared to do whatever it takes to to achieve that goal similarly people will remember towards the end of the leadership it was just self-evident that he was going to win um he didn't need to salt the earth and you recall he they did a an email out to the membership calling Jean Charest a loser, you know, like, you know, that Simpsons meme, um, like, stop it, stop it, he's already dead. Um, there is this kind of tendency on the part of the Polyev team to, to, to not have that ability to sort of moderate. And I don't even mean ideologically, I mean, kind of strategically and tactically. And I, I think it 
two things I would say about it. One, it can it can become a source of real vulnerability, um, as it is this week. And two, it's the kind of thing that I think people can sense and interpret, and it creates a, it, it turns them off of him, even though I think he's he's struck gold with this kind of overarching um, political message that has pretty broad resonance. So, um, you know, it just seems to me, hopefully, this experience causes him, him and his team to you know, yeah. to apply that kind of prudential lens, or it may be ultimately his undoing. Yeah. I mean, two two quick comments. One, yes, Stuart, I, I'm sure it was a big list. But the question, I guess, is who gives you the list? Who are your partners? Who are you working with? And, you know, you might have some ideas as to who these people are um, who are providing these lists. And you might understand that those people are pretty aggressive, pretty radical. And you know, without naming names, some of them may be playing footsie with other folks in the media space who do actively court uh, these these uh, marginal communities because they know that they're easy clickbait, that these, as I've written for The Hub, that these are people that you can commodify. You can you can target them. Uh, they they come onto your platforms and then you resell them to Google and Facebook and and whoever. So in a sense, they're they're the mark, right? Um, this is part of a kind of hustle culture, like a negative hustle culture that we see in the media, on the internet, all the time. And his campaign throughout the, their campaign, you know, deeply fraternized with that aspect of our web culture, of our information space. It's the same space, you know, at the kooky end that the Alex Joneses and the others inhabit. And they, and when you brush up against that stuff, you know, the SHIT rubs off. And I just hope that this is a wake-up call and they take out, you know, the astringent, powerful astringent, and just cleanse, cleanse their vendors, cleanse the, you know, because uh, as Sean said, it's unnecessary. And we know from, you know, the reporting you and others done at the hub that this is a party and a leader has a real problem with women in terms of support in the electorate. And can you imagine what the liberals are going to do with this when it comes to ads, when it comes to making an unfair claim, possibly that, you know, this is a misogynist party and a misogynist leader and someone who wants to take women's rights and women's opportunity backward. You've just handed them a massive gift. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, and and as I say, I think it comes back to my earlier comments when we we're talking about Smith. Like, you know, you, there is a tendency in modern politics created in part by the 24-hour news cycle and the kind of urgency of social media to think of every day as a battle that has to be won. And I think that's the wrong way to think about it. You know, one of the things that made Justin Trudeau prime minister is that he and his team executed a really thoughtful plan between 2013 when he becomes leader and 2015 when he becomes prime minister. And it's easy to forget throughout a lot of that period, they're behind. And actually, there's people calling for Gerald Butts's head and Katie Telford's head that the strategy is not working, but they believed in it. They believed that they were making kind of incremental long-term progress. He's giving speeches on energy in Calgary and climate. He's giving speeches on Canada's relationship with the U.S. And it was a it was a long term view that ultimately was successful. It wasn't necessarily concerned with the kind of day to day battle. And it, it seems to me that's how Polyev needs to think of the next 
24, 36 months between now and the next election campaign, not these you know, day-to-day battles where you sell, have the gratification of a victory, but in so doing, you actually harm yourself over the, over the long term. Right. Yeah, I would just, can I just add, I, I, the, the Trudeau thing is such a great example. And I've been trying to get this out there, that comparison, because uh, I know it'll drive both sides nuts. But <laughs> the uh, the ideas that Trudeau came in with were populist ideas. You know, they were ideas that this sort of elite sentiment was against legalizing pot and running deficits and things like that. And there is a problem that happens when you have these ideas that you know will work for you. And everyone on the sort of elite side is against you, is that you start to take that as a contra indicator where you think, oh, they're all against me, therefore I'm doing something right. And that is a really hard thing to navigate um, because sometimes you're just doing something wrong. And I think Polyev, I, I don't know you know, too deeply about his judgment, but I know that's something he's going to have to hone uh, is figuring out what is right, what is worth sticking with, even though everyone's freaking out, and what is genuinely bad. Mm-hmm. Well, um Let's wrap the show there. I just, I don't know. I just hope that our political leaders and political parties could kind of rise to the moment that we're in, uh, a moment of real, uh, yeah, I think international importance and risk and wow, you know, there's a war going on um, and people are dying and there's the specter of nuclear annihilation. Uh, It doesn't get more serious than this. And I think our political discourse, our own conversations with each other, what we try to do at the Hub every day, like let's elevate, let's enervate, um, let's try to be, you know, worthy of this moment and to have conversations of a tenor and substance that that rise uh, to the occasion. So that's my peon to our here, here. the better angels of our nature. Let's <laughs> let's see if it has any traction out there. But guys, thanks for coming on the pod this week. Uh, we'll do it all again next Friday. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable edition of the Hub Dialogues. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of the Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, the Hub's Editor-in-Chief. This program is produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada. You can also get video and audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub's podcast feed on virtually any audio platform. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. That's The Hub Dialogues, and it's waiting for you right now on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Hub Roundtable. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.